Good morning. I remember as a kid growing up in my church in San Antonio, it seems like the application every week for the message was an altar call. And that's a great, I mean, it's better than no application at all. But like once, you've, once you're a Christian, what do you do at that point? You know, just keep coming down or just pray for those who are coming. Um, it, was, uh, it, was, it was great to get me saved in a sense, but it, it didn't take me very far after that. It took getting into college and getting in a church that actually got me in the Bible and reading the Bible. And I learned so many things just by reading the Bible. I mean, things beyond simply placing your faith in Jesus Christ, which I don't mean to minimize that as, a, as an effort or as a mission or a passion for a local church. But uh, Jesus did say in the Great Commission not only to baptize, but also to teach them to obey all that I've commanded. And all that I've commanded is a lot in the whole Bible. One of the wonderful truths that I discovered once I started actually reading the Bible for myself and uh, studying it on a level that's deeper than merely the surface is a wonderful hope. Now, I know you share this hope as a Christian if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It's a hope that you have. But it may be a hope that you don't know as much about as you would like to know, even though you may not know that you would like to know it. (laughs) So what I hope to do in our time this morning uh, is to look at a theme that is your hope. It is a wonderful hope that is called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Now, we won't do it because we would get a lot of different uh, opinions, many of which are probably slices of the pie that give us uh, a part of the truth. But if we were to stand up and if I were to ask you to just stand up and tell me, what is the kingdom of God or what, what does the Bible say about the kingdom of God, we would have a lot of different answers. And uh, they would probably in some measure all be correct. But when we think about the kingdom of God, Having this as a mindset of our life and our hope gives us not only some, a measure of perseverance and passion for life and hope that there's good news coming, but it also gives you an incredible grid or an incredible uh, filter when you're reading the Bible to go, oh, that's talking about the kingdom. Oh, that's talking about the kingdom, especially when you're reading the major and minor prophets. So much of the major and minor prophets focus on the, on the coming kingdom. And we read it and we just sort of, you know, don't understand it, and so we move on. So what I'd like to do is trace and in some sense chase this theme of the kingdom of God throughout the Bible. I, have, I promise you, I have tried as much as I can to, to reduce your Bible flipping and turning But there's still quite a bit of it, because this theme is all throughout the Bible, so much more, obviously, than we can uh, look at on a complete level. So turn, if you would, first of all, to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. The kingdom of God is really, arguably, the theme of the whole Bible. A lot of times, if you'll ask, uh, what is the theme of the Bible, you'll often get a very good answer, Redemption. And that's a great answer. 
But it, it's really the means to the end. It is not the end. It is not the ultimate purpose or the ultimate theme of the Bible. Redemption is the sense that, that allows us to accomplish or allows God to accomplish his main goal of the kingdom of God. We don't just die and go to heaven and then we're there forever, you know, hello eternity. There is more that we have to look forward to than just heaven. Now, heaven's great. <laughs> don't get me wrong. But, but God tells us more than simply what happens when we die and go to heaven. Uh, we actually come back and we get to be on this earth for a period of time. That's not a cult. That's biblical. And we're going to look at what the Bible says about that. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, look down at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. This is uh, the context of Hebrews, of course, is the author writing to the uh, early church, to Jewish Christians, to Christians who were primarily Jewish, I should say, challenging them not to go back to the old way because Christ is superior in many ways to many different things, and not the least of which are angels, and that's, what he, that's the context of which we read here in chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And you have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. So let's pause right there and look at what this author is saying. First of all, in verse 5, he's speaking of he, and I and you who have the New American Standard or another translation that capitalizes the pronouns that refer to God or to Jesus are at an advantage. If you have the NIV uh, or another translation that doesn't do that, you have to uh, really do some heavy or serious interpretation of who's the him referring to in all of this or the he. But we'll talk about that. He, God, did not subject to angels, verse 5, the world to come. Now, I have a marginal reading that is very helpful there. And my margin, it says that literally the word the world is the inhabited earth. So if you think of the world, the world to come, uh, we hear the, the phrase the world to come, we sort of think of, you know, the next life, or maybe we're talking about glory or heaven or, or whatever that is. But when we understand that the word that's used here is the inhabited earth to come, that there is a, an era coming where this earth is part of it, and it is a future part of this earth, the inhabited earth to come. So when he says that he did not give to angels, uh, he did not promise or subject to angels the inhabited earth to come, but he says in verse uh, six, seven, and eight, he's given it to humanity. And I like it that the author of the Hebrews here, inspired by God, says uh, in verse six, one has testified somewhere saying, <laughs> like, you know, you could look it up. This is Psalm 8. You don't have to tell us it's just somewhere. I like that. 
somebody said somewhere, you know, what is man? Well, it was David, and he said it in Psalm 8. And he quotes Psalm 8, where David is basically saying, as he looks at the stars and he says, God, I look at the stars and they're amazing. Who, who, are, who am I? Who is mankind that you would bother with us? And the divine answer given to David, which is quoted here in verse 7, you have made him a little while lower than the angels, and you have appointed him over the works of your hands. That over all this amazing creation that God has made, who is humanity? God designed Adam and Eve to rule this creation. To rule this creation. And so the kingdom of God, if we understand not only this from Psalm 8, but all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, that the purpose of humanity on earth is to rule the earth. And so the kingdom of God uh, is, has become people ruling the earth under the authority of God. Now, I'm going to say a big word that I honestly, I forget what it means because it's so seldom that we use it, but I'll mention it because maybe it'll be of interest to some of you, and that is the word theocracy. Theocracy refers to God ruling uh, through people, that God's made people and that the kingdom of God on earth is intended to be a theocracy, that is where people rule it under the authority of God. But of course, Adam and Eve immediately blew it with their sin, and the kingdom of God eh, comes to an abrupt end. Genesis chapter 3, deal done. So the kingdom of God's no longer in effect once Adam and Eve sin. And so these thousands of years go by, and God begins a, a, a program working with the nation Israel. But I'm get ahead of myself. Look down at verse 8, and here's where the capital pronouns really would help, help you. Verse 8 says, uh, you put all things in subjection under his feet, speaking of humanity, for in subjecting all things to him, little h, mankind, he, that's God, left nothing that is not subject to him, little h, humanity. And he says, but now we don't see all things subjected to him. Meaning God created us to rule the earth, but now it ain't happening. That's what he's saying. But what do we see? Verse 9, but we do see him, capital H, meaning Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So Jesus came as a man, as a human, every bit as human as we are, and we get a hint right here that one of the purposes of Jesus taking on humanity was to fulfill God's original intent to rule the earth as a man, or, or as people, as humanity. And it's one of those things that we, we often say, you know, if you want something done, you might as well do it yourself. That's kind of the way it, it ended up with the Lord, in the sense that when Jesus came, he ultimately fulfilled and ultimately will fulfill God's purpose for humanity. But he is not yet ruling how do we know that? Look back up at the end of chapter 1, verse 13. It says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus sits at the right hand of God now until. So he's not going to be there forever. He sits there until 
I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. In other words, until the kingdom. Until the kingdom on earth. So the first time Jesus, met, the world met Jesus Christ, it really wasn't that impressed with him. I mean, he's born in a barn, laid in a cattle trough, raised in obscurity as a carpenter, rejected by his nation, and uh, ultimately died in poverty. At least that was the world's view of Jesus. And it was an accurate view from their perspective. In their minds, a king comes in glory, not in poverty. A king crushes his enemies. A king does not permit himself to be crushed by his enemies. For this reason and many others, the Jewish nation rejected Jesus Christ. And for this reason and others, his own disciples, though they didn't reject him, were very confused. Because everyone had the same understanding that when the king comes, he rules. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense that the king would come and be crucified. All right, turn, if you would, to chapter 9. Turn to chapter 9 in Hebrews. And look at something there. We're familiar with 927, but 928, very end of the chapter, is also helpful. Hebrews 9, 27, 28. It says, And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So it says here, Jesus is coming a second time. He's going to appear a second time, not with regard to sin, meaning he's already taken care of that the first coming. He died on the cross for our sins. He's coming the second time to bring the ultimate salvation that, that those of us who eagerly await him. All right, now, if you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And what I've attempted to do so far is just simply to show that Jesus has, Jesus will ultimately be that solution. He will be the one who will reign on the earth over the kingdom of God, but it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. It's still coming. But this theme of the kingdom of God is all throughout the Bible. And we'll just take a few passages you know, from Isaiah, just a couple of the prophets here, to give you just sort of a taste. You know, like when you're walking down the mall and you walk by Chick-fil-A and they give you those little toothpicks of uh, chicken, and you, you take one bite and you, and you end up buying like three uh, of their burgers because they're so tasty. That's what it's like reading these little parts of, of uh, the prophets regarding the coming. When we're done, hopefully, when you read your Bible through over the course of the next year, two years, however often you work your way through it, that you will begin to see, oh, that's talking about the kingdom of God. And your juices will start squirting in your mouth and you'll be thinking, I've got to have more of this. Isaiah chapter 2 is where we'll go. But before we get there, let me just remind you of something you probably know already. But after the fall of humanity and the kingdom of God came to an abrupt stop with Adam and Eve, and God's purpose for humanity seemed to be thwarted by Satan, what would God do? Well, God decided through one man, Abraham, that he would begin a brand new nation, a brand new race of people. 
and that is the Hebrew race, or today the Jewish race. And he promised Abraham three things. Land, which is the promised land, or Israel, Canaan. Descendants, which are the Jewish people. And blessing. And the blessing is that which ultimately comes through Jesus Christ, the book of Galatians tells us. It would be through these descendants that the blessing of Abraham would come to earth again. And at Mount Sinai, in the book of Exodus, God restarts the kingdom program. In fact, he tells these descendants of Abraham, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. And he makes a covenant with them that basically says, if you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, I'll curse you. We've talked about this many times, so you're familiar with that. But that, the kingdom of God begins then again. On earth, as God rules through Israel, specifically when they get into the land, promised to Abraham, and God sets up these kings, Saul, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and on it goes. And even after the nation splits in the southern kingdom, you still had the line of David ruling very poorly, but ruling over God's kingdom in, uh, in this theocracy. And God also promised to David this wonderful covenant that it would happen. But in Isaiah chapter 2, we have a beautiful picture of what this kingdom is going to look like in its ultimate fulfillment. Look at chapter 2, right in verse 1. The word which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in, in, that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now, when has that been fulfilled? Not yet. And yet, there it is. Now, unless we spiritualize this somehow and just make it, you know, that he's talking about, you know, heaven. Um, this really has nothing to put our finger on in history unless we understand this in the context of God's promise that the Messiah is going to come and set this up on earth, which, of course, is exactly what the Scripture teaches. And what a beautiful picture that, that God uses there in verse 2. It says, all the nations will stream to it. Dr. Charlie Dyer taught Kathy and me a class on uh, geography some many years ago, and one of the things he said that was uh, helpful was just look at the geography of Israel. He put Israel right in the middle of all the nations, and even in antiquity, when, when anyone wanted to go to Egypt or fight with Egypt or trade with Egypt, or when Egypt wanted to go to any other part of the world, they had to go through Israel. Israel was literally the crossroads of the ancient world, and all nations did stream through it. And all nations wanted to control it because of its strategic geography. God placed them there. And it says here in verse 2, 
that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord, that is the temple mount, will be established as the most important of all the mountains, and the nations will stream to it. That in the kingdom, that the nations are going to come to Jerusalem, and they're going to ultimately worship or give homage to Jesus Christ. All right, look in Isaiah chapter 11 now. Isaiah 11. Verse 1. This is about the branch or the righteous branch from the stem of Jesse. This is speaking of the Messiah. Now, this is describing the wonderful reign of the kingdom. And again, if we don't have that mindset, as we're reading through the prophets, we'll just read this and think, this sounds great, but what's it referring to? It's referring to the future kingdom of God that you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will be in and you will experience. Look in verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what he see, but what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day... The nations will resort to the root of Jesse, that's Jesus, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. None of us would allow our children to play by a snake hole. And yet in the kingdom of God, that's going to happen. Can you imagine? What an incredible irony or twist that is to the Garden of Eden where the snake or the serpent was the undoing of humanity, and here in the kingdom there will be absolutely no threat at all. One reason, Satan will be bound for the thousand years. But we're not going to get into the details of that. But uh, we have this wonderful picture that, that God's purpose is going to be fulfilled in this wonderful way that all creation. I remember the first time I saw the cartoon The Lion King. It's got a lot of... Uh, sort of, I don't know, know, bad stuff in it as far as theology or whatever. But the good stuff is just the the, the picture, the word picture in the opening scene. Now, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but if you've seen the movie, if you haven't seen the movie, you could watch the first 10 minutes and get the, the best part about it. And that is that all of these animals are coming and gathering to worship, to bow down to the Lion King. And this is a wonderful song and all this music. But you see elephants bowing down. 
and lions bowing down and all these other huge animals, alligators, though they don't have far to go, they bow down as well. And then at the very end of the song, you know, they hold up this little lion cup as the king and all the animal kingdom is bowing down. And I saw that and thought, that's the kingdom of God right there, except it's Jesus, not this little lion cup. It's a wonderful picture, and we get a sense of that in this passage that, that the, the fallen nature of, of even animals today that are at odds with each other and us with them, that's going to all be gone. That we're going to be able to walk right up to a lion, you know, like we do at the zoo with that three-inch plexiglass in between us, without the plexiglass, and just touch that lion like we do our Labradors. It's going to be great. Isaiah 65. Look at Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 20. I won't ask you if you feel old, but if you feel old, it's all relative. Because once we look at this passage, you're going to feel young. <laughs> look at verse 20. No longer will there be in it, this is speaking of the, the kingdom, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So, the one who is obviously not yet resurrected, those, those unbelievers during what's called the tribulation time will enter the kingdom of God as regular old humans before they are resurrected themselves. And of these brand new believers, we're told, that if they were to die before the age of you know, 100, they will be considered as if accursed. That regular life is the life of a tree. That's a long life when you're thinking about the life of a tree. Some of us, we think we've got a lot of rings in us now. Imagine. And the kingdom will be those who live for centuries. How many centuries? At this point, we don't know. We're just, we've given in Isaiah the clear implication here, wow, the kingdom is going to be a long time. If someone can, if the youth dies at the age of 100, how long is the kingdom going to be? Well, we don't know yet, but it's coming. The answer to that question. Have you ever thought about the question, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? That's a, that's a great question. That's a fun question. Here's another question that isn't quite as fun. <laughs> how old would you be if others didn't know how old you are? 
that's not quite as fun. That's a little frightening. Uh, I remember I had my first senior moment several years ago. <laughs> Kathy and I went to a movie, and Kathy went on inside to get out of the heat, and I went up to buy the tickets, and I said, two for whatever the movie was. And the, the little girl behind the counter, she looked like she was like, you know, 14 or something, so young. And she, she gave me my tickets. And I walked inside and I looked at the tickets, and she gave me two senior tickets. And she didn't even ask me how old you are. She just assumed this guy's a senior. And I don't know what it takes to be a senior, but I wasn't. And I wanted to turn back around and say, no, I want to pay full price for this movie. <laughs> I didn't actually say, well, you know, if I'm considered a senior, then I'm a senior from here on, baby. The key to looking young is to hang around old people, they say. <laughs> this is the class to be in. Bob Hope once said, you know you've reached middle age when your weightlifting consists merely of standing up. <laughs> Ann Landers said, at, at, tw at age 20, we worry about what everyone thinks of us. At age 60, we discover they haven't been thinking of us at all. It struck me recently that I've missed my chance to have a midlife crisis, unless, you know, I live to be 112, which I probably won't. But seriously, the realization that more of life lies behind us than lies in front of us causes some people really to panic and to become desperate, to try to think that, look, I've only got however many years left in this life. I've got to squeeze the turnip. I've got to make it count. There's been so much life that's been wasted. And some of it sort of boils down to a crisis of identity, of significance, of purpose. And I get it. I mean, God built us for these things. God put these within us to have purpose, to have identity, to have significance. But all of these things, even in the best this, this, that this life has to offer us, is, is futility. They all find their satisfaction in God. And our challenge, of course, comes when we try to find solutions to these longings that merely exist in this life. Even if we live to be 100, it's still futility if this life is what we're looking for. And I say that to say, you may be at that sort of point in your life and where you feel like, and, and honestly, all of us get there eventually, or or go in and out of that feeling. It's like, what is my life worth? What am I doing? I don't feel that I have value or that what I'm doing in life matters all that much. And um, we get sort of this feeling of desperation, and we also get, we listen to the lie of Satan that tells us, God has forgotten you. You're not important to him. I mean, look at your life. You're clearly not important to him. You're not doing anything important. Nobody knows who you are. You know, your days are boring. God's abandoned you. 
And the reality is, no, 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 no. What does the Bible say? Because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, by the way, even if you live to be 100 years old in this life, that is but a fraction of the life that you're going to live in the kingdom. The kingdom is the, is the fulfillment of the longings that you have right now and that I have right now. And that is a wonderful hope because the kingdom of God is this earth. Now, granted, it will be a scorched earth because of the tribulation period, but Jesus will make all things new and he will redeem this earth from the curse. Think of the most beautiful part of this earth that you've ever seen. Maybe it's the Rocky Mountains. Maybe it's the, the, uh, the, the blue Aegean Sea that's bluer than Disneyland water. It's so beautiful. What, what is it that you've seen that's just gorgeous in this world? Maui was gorgeous. Talk about scorched earth. But think about the beautiful places. What this earth offers us now is a reflection, Romans tells us, of God's invisible attributes, but it is a reflection at best of a fallen world. Imagine what this world will look like when the curse is gone. When Jesus is reigning on this earth for all those centuries, and we get to see the earth as God intended it to be, and humanity in the earth as God intended it to be. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that is part of your future. You're going to get to experience that. The futility that you have right now in your days is sort of baked in to what it is, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, to life under the sun. The futility that we have right now is just the way it is, but it's not the way it will always be. There is a hope that's coming. And if I could challenge you that every time you feel the pang of sadness, the pang of futility and frustration in the life that God has given you, which you feel could be a whole lot better, remember, he's not done. That this life is not all of life. We've got this life, which is just a, a slice of the kingdom, which is going to last for centuries and centuries. Uh, look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah was one, he's called the weeping prophet, mainly because of lamentations, the lamenting prophet. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem. Talk about hopes dashed. And yet through Jeremiah, we have some of the most wonderful promises given to us as believers. Jeremiah 31, look down at verse 31. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with David. And this is the primary passage of what's called the New Covenant. Look at the, uh, the wonderful truths of the New Covenant, starting in verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then the, these next verses go on basically saying that uh, the sun and the moon give testimony that I will never, ever forget my people. It's the certainty of Israel's future. I love this, that people are going to know the Lord. Anybody, everybody is going to know the Lord. I was in Baltimore some years ago for a uh, theological egghead conference, basically, is what it was. And uh, it was like, you know, all the theologians of definitely America as well as people from overseas would come for a week of very intensive, you know, papers being presented and lectures. I went like over my head. There's wonderful exposure to truth that is so challenging and encouraging. But anyway, I went, uh, as I got there, I think I got a little early and I went out to Fort McHenry to see where the Star Spangled Banner flew because I'd never seen it, always wanted to. And as I was getting on a bus or something to get out there, I was standing there next to a crosswalk and a lot of people waiting to cross. And these two guys standing next to me, you know, you can't over help but overhear what people are saying when they're standing right next to you. And this one guy says to the other guy, yeah, I'm not sure that's what Isaiah means. I mean, I think he's saying this, that when you talk about this and talk about the other guys, well, I don't know. I mean, First Thessalonians says this. And I'm standing on the street of Baltimore, and people are talking about the Word of God. And it's like, this is weird. You know, you want to turn to these guys and say, you're weird. But it's only because of the context. And as I was sitting on the bus thinking about that conversation, I thought, I wonder if this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like where you're just walking down the street and everyone's just talking about the Lord and about Isaiah and about Paul and 1 Thessalonians, that there's just this context of God as the conversation. You get sort of a a small, tiny bit of that in a family that talks about God. And Kathy and I didn't do everything right about our kids. Obviously, we didn't because we're not perfect and our kids aren't perfect, and that's uh, not the goal. But uh, one of the things that we did do right is provide them a context in which talking about God was as common as talking about what we have for breakfast. God was part of our conversation, and it was wonderful to have that kind of a context. You may have grown up in that world as well, and if you didn't, you will have that chance in the kingdom of God. You'll be able to go back to the streets of Baltimore, and they'll still be talking about Isaiah. It's going to be great. Um, So turn to Daniel now. This is one of the clearest and most wonderful pictures of the kingdom of God. All the major prophets, every single one of the major prophets talks about the kingdom. Most of the minor prophets talk about the kingdom. It is coming. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Verse 13 is actually a verse that Jesus quotes as he's standing before Caiaphas, just before Caiaphas sends him to Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says this, 
I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is why Jesus' favorite reference of himself is Son of Man. He's basically saying, I'm the Messiah of Daniel chapter 7. I'm the Son of Man here. And when he stands before Caiaphas, he quotes this. When Caiaphas asks him, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Quoting this. Caiaphas didn't take that really well. And uh, consequently, that was the nail in the coffin that eventually got Jesus crucified. But Daniel clearly says there is a kingdom coming. And in the context of Daniel, if you just look around, he's talking about all the kingdoms of this world. He's not talking about, you know, clouds in heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of this world. And there's an ultimate kingdom in which the Son of Man is coming and will reign over it. All right, well, let's get into the New Testament quickly. Look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. So Jesus comes, and after a few chapters of the birth narratives and his temptation, Jesus begins to preach. What did Jesus preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is at hand. Every Jew who heard Jesus' words knew what he meant by the kingdom of God. Because as we have done in the past few minutes and looking in the Old Testament, the kingdom of God was this promised coming kingdom of wonderful bliss where Israel rules the world under their Messiah. And so Jesus is basically saying, he offering the kingdom to Israel if they will simply repent. And the whole purpose of the Gospel of Matthew is basically to answer the question, if Jesus was the king, where's the kingdom? And Matthew says, well, Jesus was rejected. And remember, the kingdom only comes when Israel accepts Jesus or when Israel repents. And that is still true, by the way, that the kingdom will not come until Israel repents. Acts chapter 1, look right in verse um, four, uh, 3. He spe- he's speaking of Jesus who comes to his disciples. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And then verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you were, go- that you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Interesting that even after the Gospels in which the disciples were expecting Jesus to bring in a literal physical kingdom, after his death and resurrection and spending 40 days with them, teaching the kingdom of God, they still had the understanding that it was a literal physical kingdom on this earth because they, after those 40 days of being taught by him, their question was, when? We get it. You had to die and now you rise again. That's great. 
When's the kingdom coming? That was their question. And Jesus' answer is, well, it's not for you to know when, but rather what you are to do in the meantime until it does come. And he says, you're basically to, and he gives the Great Commission, be my witnesses or make disciples of the nations. And so they do that. That's why the book of Acts begins with this way, because it's the, it's the crying call of what the apostles do. And the Acts of the Apostles and the book of Acts shows them obeying Jesus, going to Jerusalem, to Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So that at the very end of the book of Acts, turn there, Acts chapter 28, we see the exact same theme. It hasn't changed. Acts chapter 28, very last book, a uh, very last chapter of the book of Acts. We have Paul imprisoned in Rome, which at that time was the end of the earth. And verse 23, verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, morning till evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Look down at verse 30, last two verses. He stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So Luke very carefully begins the book of Acts with a, conver- a question about the kingdom of God, with Jesus saying, don't worry when that's going to happen. For now, you go to the Gentiles. The book of Acts ends with them having done that, but also Paul saying, still preaching the kingdom to the Jews, but also showing that the Jews, some believed, but some were not believers. Some were not persuaded. And so as a result, it's still we're still waiting on the Gentiles to come in. So beginning of Acts and end of Acts both talks about the kingdom of God. God's plan for, the, for Israel, for the kingdom of God, has not gone away. But in the meantime, we preach to the Gentiles, to those who are not Jews, to come into the kingdom. Wonderful, wonderful truth. All right, one more place it will be the last place. Look at the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation 19 is the end of the story and the fulfillment when this kingdom actually finally does come. Most of the book of Revelation outlines the details that lead up to the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ actually has two phases. And I've thought about a way to illustrate this. Let's use this lectern here as, a, as points. And this side of it, to use the left side, this side is the right side, and will represent two points. So everything prior to this, I'm looking at it from your perspective, everything prior to this is the church age. And this point, boom, is what's called the rapture, where the church is taken out of the picture. And then everything that is the pulpit or the lectern here is the tribulation, which is appropriate as I stand here. And then this point, the end of it, is the actual second coming of Christ to earth with all of us following behind Christ and then the kingdom of God 
is what goes on, and it eventually leads into eternity. So you've got the church age, you've got the tribulation, and you've got the kingdom of God. And you've got these two points, boom, boom. The rapture takes Christians out, second coming brings Christians back, and then the kingdom begins, not only with us, but also with Israel resurrected to enter this uh, wonderful period of, of time. Revelation 19, we see the second coming of Jesus. And we won't read the, uh, all of the text here, but if you just look at verse 11 and following, we have this beautiful picture of Jesus, or the description, I should say, of Jesus coming, of him waging war against the enemies. And it, it is at this time that uh, the book of Zechariah actually tells us that Israel their eyes are opened. They see Jesus for who he really is. They mourn for him as one, uh, as for a, a, an only son whom they have pierced, and they place their faith in Christ. And so what happens then when Israel finally repents? The kingdom comes. Exactly. Look at chapter 20. This is the ultimate fulfillment of all of our longings. Uh, the first couple of verses are great. You know, Satan is bound and tossed away, which is great. And um, we'll start in verse 2. He says that he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and did not receive the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And on and on it goes. We've got the thousand years in verse 5, thousand years in verse 6, thousand years in verse 7. Several times, quite a few times here in these verses, we're told finally how long this kingdom is going to be. It's going to be a thousand years, which is why it's often called the millennium. It's called the millennium, millennial kingdom. It's a thousand years. And this is our hope. This is our future, where we will get to reign with Christ on this inhabited earth in the future, with Jesus reigning, having put down Satan, having put down the unbelievers at that time, and we have a thousand years of the lion laying down with the lamb and your grandchildren playing with snakes. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> doesn't sound great, but it's going to be wonderful. Uh, I remember I was at a Starbucks a few years ago, and I was, it was one of those Starbucks where it was really small and there wasn't a lot of room, and it was the only one in town, and I had a couple of hours to kill waiting for lunch for a friend, and so I basically just sat at the first table that was available, had a lot of interesting, overheard a lot of interesting conversations, but the best were this group of Irishmen that came in who uh, clearly were not from uh, locals. They were, they were visiting America and were touring America, and, and I was actually in Tennessee, and they were there to see Civil War sites. And so they crowded around the table, and this one guy had no problem getting really close to me. I mean, just, you know, we all crammed in, and I was there with my laptop trying to work, and this guy just, I could feel his body heat on me. It's like, it's like, give us just a little space, my friend. 
But, you know, their Irish brogues were just loud, and they were having fun and talking about all the this evil war sites that they came to see and everything. But it turns out there was one guy that wasn't with them named Mick. And uh, they said, well, where did Mick go? He went to church. What do you go there for? For confession. And one of the other guys said, we better get more coffee then because we're going to be here a long time. <laughs> And we all laughed. I laughed, even though I wasn't supposed to be listening. (laughs) Everybody at the table laughed. And it struck me, you know we all laugh in the same language. Everybody knows what a laugh is. Everybody knows what a laugh means. And Jesus' kingdom is going to have Irishmen, Americans, even though some Americans were Irishmen, (laughs) and all nations there rejoicing, laughing, no longer having to confess our sins because we've enjoyed the full forgiveness of those sins. We have that to look forward to. And I just would also want to say, if, you've, if this is all strange to you, and by that I'm, I don't mean that you've never heard this before, but rather the things of God, and placing your faith in Jesus Christ seems like an odd thing, uh, an unfamiliar thing that Christ came and died for our sins because having our sins paid for and taken away is the only way that we could ever come into the presence of a holy God. It's a gift that he's given to you and to me. And he promises that if you'll simply believe in him, if you'll simply believe that what he's done, that your sins will be removed and you will be forever and forever in the presence of God when you die You have the wonderful promise of the kingdom to look forward to, and then, of course, eternity after that. It's a wonderful hope. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this whirlwind tour that we've taken through the kingdom from Genesis to Revelation and various places in between that we see this wonderful promise of heaven on earth in many ways. And as the Lord Jesus told his disciples to, uh, to pray, thy kingdom come. It is this kingdom that we're praying for, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is this kingdom we're praying for, that one day indeed your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because our Lord Jesus Christ will be reigning on earth and um, ruling this earth with us, ruling with him ultimately fulfilling your purpose for humanity. What a wonderful hope we have. And Father, we ask that if there is anyone uh, who has yet to place their faith in Christ, that you'd soften their heart, show them their need, show them very clearly your gift to them, through who is Jesus, that he loves them and died for them and will one day be returning for them. And may our hope be their hope. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Wayne. That was great insight into the kingdom, and we're closer than we've ever been. You know, that's great. I still need help on the donuts. If anybody is uh, interested in taking up that ministry with me, please let me know. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.